0: Kia and welcome to Te a Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This is the first in a series of three online panel discussions on COVID-19 and the future of the New Zealand economy. In this session, the panelists discuss the short-term economic outlook, what effect the lockdown has had on families, what sectors have been hit worst, and what the government might be able to
1: afford. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Victoria University Spotlight Lecture Series. This is the first in the series of three Spotlight Lectures being delivered by Victoria University of Wellington people. And it's focusing on the impact that COVID-19 is having on the New Zealand economy. So in the past, these lunchtime lectures have been a great opportunity to hear from a range of experts on issues Facing our society. And of course, they've usually been, been delivered in person from the Papatea campus of Victoria University. Well, today we're taking advantage of uh, new technologies to be able to, delighted to offer people around the country, the opportunity to join our discussion here today. So I'm Professor Alan Ballard. I'm Chair for Pacific Region Business at the Wellington School of Business and Government. I'll be moderating these sessions. In a moment, I'm going to introduce the panelists we've got here today. But first, a quick run through on how we'll be using the technology to facilitate discussion. So we're looking to generate a lively discussion amongst the panelists today, and there'll be a chance for you to ask your questions of them as well. We're going to be using the Q and A functionality of Zoom. So I encourage you to submit your questions through the session and also vote on other questions that other participants have put there where you think they're worthy of attention. And we'll do our best to try and answer as many of those as we can in the last section of today's event. Well, let me introduce today's panelists. Very pleased to have three expert people and they're all from the Wellington School of Business and Government at Victoria University. We have Professor Arthur Grimes, who has the Chair of Wellbeing and Public Policy. We have Dr. Kate Prickett, who's director of the Roy McKenzie Centre for the Study of Families and Children. And we have Toby Moore, who's a teaching fellow at the School of Business and Government. So before we open up to the panel, Let's just pose the subject we're talking about. It's COVID-19. It's come on us with very little precedent. But as social scientists, we look for some precedent in terms of trying to understand what this means and particularly the economic implications. And where do we start? 1919 influenza epidemic seems epidemiologically the most obvious place. But on the other hand, public health responses and economic policy responses were completely different in those times. Looking more recently, we can think of big supply side disruptions. The OPEC oil crises in the 1970s were a big supply disruption with some similarities. We can think of big demand um, bottlenecks as well. So the 9-11 terrorist attacks and the impact that they had on air travel in the United States and internationally uh, is an interesting example from a demand side obstacle. We can think of financial crises as well. And of course, that's the one that a lot of the comparison has been with the 2007, 2008 global financial crisis, which moved very rapidly around much of the world through the financial channels. Well, with COVID-19, I think we've got all of those put together. It's a supply side shock where we've been unable to keep some parts of the economy going. It's a demand side shock where we've been unable to keep demand for certain parts of the economy. It's certainly going to have its financial implications as it goes through. And to make it all worse or harder for us to understand it's an unknown event. We've never seen this thing before. It's highly unexpected surveys in the United States of business continuity plans show that most experts did not have this sort of pandemic in their contingency planning and it's happened worldwide and happened all at once so it's a maximum shock of this sort I think as we go on and the panelists take us through their views on it quite useful to think about three different phases first of all the lockdown phase this is Very unusual. This is the economy on ventilator, if you like. It's not a time when you can think of normal stimulus because the economy can't get out and operate. We're trying simply to preserve jobs, preserve businesses, so that it's there when it can get out. This has been level four and level three lockdown. We assume it's achieved very desirable health benefits, 21 deaths but we know it's caused immense economic damage. The Reserve Bank um, put out a piece saying, on level four, uh, you should assume that GDP drops by somewhere between 35 and 40%, just a massive hit, and we don't know how long. But the second phase is the return to work, and we're shortly moving to level two. At that stage, the labor force that can get back in more actively will grow very, very markedly, but we assume that we'll be operating at high cost, low productivity for various reasons. This is the time when we look to see stimulus from the government, and we'll talk about this. Tomorrow, the Reserve Bank puts out its monetary policy statement. We'll hear about their update on stimulus. The next day, the government puts out their budget. We'll hear about fiscal response. So pretty interesting timing on all of this. And then the third phase, is going to be stabilisation. It's a bit hard at this stage to think about the problems we're going to have maybe maybe this year, maybe next year, maybe year after in terms of inflation, in terms of debt, in terms of productivity. It's going to depend very much on whether we have a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery. It's going to be very hard to pull back stimulus but that's going to be an issue for us as well. well we're talking in this session about shorter term and immediate um, impacts and where it's all going. Arthur, can you take us through what is actually happening in the economy at the moment and how do you know what's actually happening?
2: Thanks very much, Alan. Well, uh, as you say, this is probably the largest economic supply shock that's ever hit this country uh, and for that matter uh, to have hit most countries in in their history. Uh, or at least the last couple of hundred years. Um, One estimate that I have seen is that the second quarter GDP in New Zealand will have fallen roughly 18% from the first quarter, uh, which is unprecedented. Um, But then third quarter GDP might be up 10%. uh, So quite a big rebound. That sounds like a good thing, but when you put those two together, you're still 10% down on where you were in the first part of the year. Uh, And that's, that's just enormous. And I just want to put that in comparison. During the Great Depression, 1929 to 33, GDP fell 12% cumulatively over that time. So we're looking at a similar drop within the space of a couple of months. Uh, In the 1880s depression, it fell 13%, similar sort of amount. Um, After the Spanish flu, fell 2.4%, but then rebounded very sharply by 8% the following year. So we see some very different situations. Sometimes it rebounds fast, sometimes it doesn't. Um, according to the Bank of England, the UK economy is suffering its worst supply shock, uh, worst downturn in GDP since 1706, uh, when there was a harvest failure. Uh, so, w- how do we know that those are the cases? These are coming from people who have got their um, looking at their own um, companies' situation, sometimes bank economists who have got very good uh, feels for what's actually happening with it, with their own clients, etc, uh, that kind of information tends to be a lot more useful than the macroeconomic information put out by uh, the major macroeconomic agencies or Stats New Zealand. Uh, in other countries, what are we seeing? Well, as, we, as I said, UK's worst downturn in 300 years, in China, sharp downturn, but then by the end of March, of course, it had a big rebound, uh, manufacturing back up to 90% of capacity, uh, financial sector 100%, services 80%, and interestingly, traffic congestion back up to almost 100% of usual. Uh, so that partly that is also, of course, because people are shunning public transport, um, as we will see here, no doubt. On the share market, it's an interesting situation. The share market, the MSCI, world share market, the world, if you like, index, is higher than at any time through to 2017, November 2017. So share markets are not too fast by this. Um, We saw them come down. We saw them go up. uh, They're back to where they were in early 2019. So people are expecting in the share markets for us to ride through this and to be back onto a growth trajectory uh, within a short space of time. Whether that's true or not, we'll come to see. Uh, But the share markets are not too phased by what's happening. Um, What sectors? I think we all know the sectors in New Zealand that are badly affected. Obviously anything to do with people movement, aviation, tourism, hospitality, education, um, arts, films and sports are all badly affected. Uh, Public transport is badly affected and probably will remain badly affected for some time. Uh, You could think of catching the COVID Express if you want to take public transport into town. Short term construction and manufacturing have been very badly uh, affected, but that's bouncing back now. But you mentioned productivity, and this is an interesting one. I think you have to go with what people on the ground are saying. And I was talking to the chief executive of one large construction firm, very large construction firm recently, who thought that productivity at level three was running at about 75% of average. Uh, in other words, uh, huge government support still required because of the real downturn in productivity caused by the Level 3 restrictions, and that's probably not going to improve too much under Level 2. So even if firms are returning to work, they've still um, got a big productivity hit uh, attached to them, and that's going to be a major impediment for, for some time, at least till we get to Level 1. Some sectors are relatively unaffected, um, thank goodness we have commodities. Um, agriculture, fishing, wine, the trees keep growing. Uh, that all contributes to GDP. Owner-occupied houses keep providing services to their uh, to their um, people who live in them, and that keeps going through to GDP. Uh, a sector that could rebound quite fast is house building. Um, we do hear reports from KiwiSaver providers that um, first-time potential first-time owners are actually trying to access their KiwiSaver. Um, deposits for their first home deposit, uh, and of course, that deposit uh, has come down now, probably as a result of the Reserve Bank move on loan to value ratios. Uh, plus, the government no doubt will move on revitalising the Kiwi build and social housing um, processes there. So, I expect that to come through. And then we see the software and digital sectors thriving in some respects. We saw a recent announcement by Pushpay that the digital tithing for churches in the US has gone through the roof, and that's been very beneficial for their business. So some businesses are going well. And interestingly, a UK analysis divided firms in the UK into four types. One were hibernators, um, that was 28% of firms that have basically just shut up shop for a while. Survivors who are muddling on, that was about a third of firms. Pivoters who've managed to change their production to something that's necessary now, such as changing from plastic bags to masks. And then Thrivers, that's the 6% of firms that are doing really well out of all this. Uh, That's probably not too much different to New Zealand. One thing that uh, worries me uh, is the type of firms that are affected and what that means for the longer term. We've seen poorly capitalised firms, uh, no doubt, suffering through this, the ones that haven't got a decent equity buffer. Uh, and we've seen a trend over recent uh, years and the last couple of decades for firms with lazy capital to have their management sacked or to be taken over. Uh, lazy capital will now be seen to be a very positive thing in the future, but those that didn't have it will be really struggling. And what that means is that it's going to be more difficult to recover because firms that have had their equity base uh, removed will be much more reluctant to invest in new capital equipment than what we've seen in the past. So that's normally a fast um, rebounder out of recession, and that'll be tough for firms to finance new capital investment. So the outlook's going to depend on China's bounce back. Is that, does that continue? Uh, is it going to be industrial led or consumer led? At the moment it's industrial led, but could uh, rebound to consumers as well. We're going to be very dependent on Australia's bounce back, uh, which of course is also dependent on China. Um, And both of those countries are going to remain somewhat demand-constrained by the rest of the world. So what happens in the rest of the world is going to be very important. And the other thing, of course, progress is going to depend on whether decent antiretrovirals come through, a vaccine eventually comes through, or whether we decide to adopt the Swedish model and uh, just uh, uh, learn to live with COVID deaths. And, uh, you know, clearly that's one model that's being tried in the world. Uh, Belarus is another one. Um, and so we'll uh, wait to see which, uh, which route we take. I'll leave mm-hmm. it
1: there. Yeah, well, thank you, Arthur. Um, you've raised a whole bunch of things there, but we're going to go to Kate and ask Kate. Uh, we've, talk, we've been talking about the economy. It's something you can value in dollars, and that's what we're doing. You've been looking at household um, response to lockdown, some of the impacts there, what you're seeing there, what is actually happening do you think through this period in homes and to people and how is that going to change as we get a little less lockdown?
0: Yeah, thank you, Alan, uh, Tanakoto. Uh, I'm going to share some insight from a survey that we had out in the field res- recently and use my minutes to talk about Um, the potential and the real and potential impacts of this current lockdown period, specifically on families, social and economic well-being. Um, So as you all know, on March 25th, all Kiwis were asked, regardless of the circumstance, um, to protect the health of themselves and each other by going into this um, lockdown. And as we were asked to do this, um, there was at least in the language that was being used by politicians and government officials an understanding that this lockdown may be harder for some families than others. And so the Roy McKenzie Center along with the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies uh, madly rushed to get a survey into the field where we could get a real time sense of the social, economic and psychological impact of being in lockdown on families. So we put this survey out into the field during week three of Alert Level 4 lockdown, sampling just over 2,000 people. So in terms of overall well-being, uh, what did we find? Um, well, in the aggregate, uh, so looking at all people in the sample together, we haven't really seen much change in reported well-being uh, in terms of declines in how people believe sort of the relationship with their family is going, with their partner, um, the relationship with their children, per se. Now, in the survey, um, we were collecting quantitative data, but we also had a text box there asking people to submit anything, tell us anything they wanted to about the lockdown period. And a lot of people talked about how they had benefited from this time. Uh, It gave them some time to slow down, uh, you know, reconnect with their family, spend more quality time with kids. So there was a lot of people were seeing some positives in this lockdown period. Where you do find changes or declines in well-being, however, is for specific groups of people. Right. So in particular, we found declines in family well-being um, among low-income families uh, and among single parents. Um, so I'd say that the overall message is if you weren't doing well before going to lockdown in terms of your income and your family support, the lockdown really made things even harder. Now, apart from the low-income families and single parents, there was another group that experienced significant declines in well-being, and those, uh, those were people who experienced job loss. Um, so by week three of the lockdown in our survey, um, around 13% of the respondents said that either themselves or someone, another adult in their household, had lost their job due to the lockdown. And then we also found that 44% of the sample were living in a household where they themselves or someone else had an income decline. Right? So in short, there's a really large proportion of households who've put, been put in a much more precarious economic position due to the lockdown itself. And then again, when we look and see who, does, who did this really impact, if you were low income going into the lockdown, this impacted you more. Uh, also young people and ethnic, my, not, um, ethnic minorities, so Māori and Pacifica. And then when you go and see is this job loss correlated with these wellbeing indicators, it sure is. So those who experienced, were in households that experienced job loss, they had declines in reports of the quality of their relationship with their family from pre to during lockdown. And for those that had partners, they were reporting uh, an increase in disagreements with their partner and also declines in how they were feeling supported by them. So um, that's sort of the immediate real time indicators of well being. Uh, what do these patterns mean, say, if we're going to be looking at a longer term economic contraction? Um, well, there are going to be a lot of families um, that have not experienced job loss before or have not had to rely on the benefit system who are now moving into that system and could stay there longer. Um, This is problematic because we know that the toll of job loss for well-being is compounded over time, right? So, we want to move people back into work as soon as we can. Um, Perhaps trickiest um, for families with young children uh, and a slow recovery means that people may need to be taking jobs that don't necessarily work for them and their families, right? So, they may be moving into industries where there are lower wages, um, so they're having real income decline over the long term. Uh, They may need to take on multiple jobs or jobs that are less stable. Uh, And again, for families, they may need to reorganize their routines, their childcare arrangement around jobs that are less likely to fit this um, nine-to-five mold, which we know is how the childcare system is set up. Um, So in short, we're really looking at a a reorganization of the work-family nexus for many Kiwis. And what we know from the data is that it's likely to affect those families who are most vulnerable to begin with. Um, So I've talked about more more of the economic um, household uh, well being indicators, um, but also we need to acknowledge that sort of it has a wider impact than that. And so I want to throw out a few sort of outstanding questions and things to be looking at and put them on your radar. Uh, family violence and disruption is obviously a huge issue, and rightly so. Um, police have been reporting higher incidences of family violence. Uh, women's Refuge has seen an enormous surge in um, demand for their services. And our, again, our data is showing that there has been declines in partner supportiveness, increases in arguing, right? And these can be considered sometimes a precursor of this family violence. Uh, and I'm talking about this as a social outcome, but obviously we know that it has a real family violence has a very real economic impact. Uh, I also think that we need to be thinking about uh, childhood inequality, right? So the longer that we disrupt school, the school lives of children, the greater likelihood that these achievement gaps will widen. Uh, the research from the Christchurch earthquakes has shown that a short disruption to education like this doesn't seem to um, impact uh, the achievement gap so much, but we know that there's disparate impact on children's socio-emotional well-being, which is connected to their learning. Um, so we want to be thinking about um, what any continued or rolling disruption means for children from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, finally, I'd just like to leave you with a couple of sort of higher level policy areas that we need to be thinking about in terms of family well-being. Um, first, rethinking of our benefit system. I know that the government has made moves in this area, um, since uh, have been making moves in this area, um, but the single most important thing we could do during this time would be to guarantee income support that keeps them out of poverty while we're looking for a job. Uh, also thinking about increased and targeted school funding, particularly in communities that we know are going to be impacted the most. So increasing the educational and social support for youth and children in these areas, um, along with food and schools and resources, so we can combat hunger and make sure children have what they need to uh, what they need to learn, so that they can buffer against what may be happening in the home. And, and finally, something that's talked about internationally, but not so much here um, during this response, is sort of a rethinking of early childhood education. So New Zealand families spend a greater proportion of their disposable income on childcare than most other developed nations. And we know that high quality and affordable child care is really important for a strong economic recovery, and um, which is why that we've seen in places like Australia and in Canada, they're making a move to make ECA universal sort of during this pandemic period, right? And so we're talking about this as a work support mechanism, but we also know from the research that educa- investment in early uh, childhood education pays off in the fiscal long-term too. Um, and so those are some of my high-level talking points. I'll pass it back to you, Alan.
1: Mm. Well, thanks very much, Kate. Well, we've been hearing from Arthur, unprecedented economic disruption, and I think we're hearing from you, unprecedented household and social disruption as well. Toby, what's the government going to do about it all?
3: Um, Thanks, Alan, and thanks for inviting me along to uh, talk about the policy response. I'm gonna talk about three things here, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and then the question of government debt. Um, and as you noted in your introduction, we've got the Reserve Bank's monetary policy statement. Tomorrow we've got the government budget being released in two days time. So I like to think I'm sort of optimally placed here for any predictions that I might care to make to be immediately shown to be ridiculous. But um, in any case, If I start with monetary policy, what would we expect to see in this case in normal times? So the textbook response for monetary policy when facing a shock of this sort of magnitude is to cut interest rates by somewhere in the realm of five to 6% as Alan did as governor of the Reserve Bank during the global financial crisis. Now that hasn't been possible in this case. And the reason it hasn't been possible is that even though in the years before this crisis hit, we had relatively benign economic conditions, the economy never really got to the stage of being able to achieve those outcomes without the assistance of very, very low interest rates. So we never really built up this kind of momentum that would have allowed for some kind of normalisation um, of the capacity of monetary policy. Um, so we didn't have that sort of 5 to 6% response. Instead, in mid-March, the Reserve Bank cut interest rates from 1% down to 0.25%, and then declared that that was effectively it in terms of conventional monetary policy space. The other things that they have been doing um, have been more around the financial stability front, so ensuring there is Uh, Adequate liquidity within the the banking system through a variety of measures and also on the regulatory front. So lifting the loan to value ratio restrictions as Arthur mentioned on mortgage lending and also delaying um, the implementation of the, the rather contentious decision late last year to increase banks capital requirements. Now, only about a week after that decision to cut rates, the Reserve Bank was forced to turn to unconventional monetary policy measures, which we've seen internationally, um, but have not had to use in New Zealand before. So, namely, a sort of quantitative easing type program to purchase up to $30 billion of New Zealand government bonds through the secondary market. Now, that might sound like a lot, but the effect of this has been um, a bit more muted than you might think. First of all, the Reserve Bank was having to lean against some of the tightening and financial conditions that we started seeing uh, through March. So they, were, they already had a, a, a task to sort of um, undo that increase in longer term interest rates that we had been seeing over that period. And in terms of what this sort of asset purchase program means in kind of conventional monetary policy terms, the estimate um, that the Reserve Bank has been able to provide to Parliament was that um, a purchase of around $30 billion worth of government bonds is only about the equivalent of cutting interest rates by 1.5% or so. So we're still well short of what we might have liked to have seen. The other surprising aspect of this is that the Reserve Bank has effectively ruled out negative interest rates. um, For at least the next 12 months. And this is surprising because negative interest rates were an option that they have been talking about quite regularly and something they might look towards if they needed to Um, It's since emerged that um, the retail banks IT systems are not actually Um, able to handle a negative official cash rate, and also that the Reserve Bank was apparently only really learning about the extent of these practical obstacles to negative interest rates in late January this year. And this is despite the fact that it should have been apparent for some time that the next occasion on which New Zealand faced a major shock, interest rates were quite likely to bump up against zero. So all in all, I think monetary policy has been quite poorly placed to be able to provide support through this crisis, which has meant the fiscal policy, um, which was always going to play a big role, has had to take on um, an even greater burden. So on the fiscal policy side, the government responded quite quickly um, with a fiscal response, which ultimately is likely to be in the realm of about 7% of GDP Um, in terms of the wage subsidy program that only includes the cost through to uh, mid-June or so. Of course, that might be extended. Um, Now, I think that was a good start to things, but I think it is only the start. Um, Other countries that have taken action since then, uh, we've seen quite huge numbers uh, being made in terms of spending decisions. So $2.7 trillion of spending approved um, in the United States, or considerably more than 10% of their GDP, and most economists in the States are suggesting that the US government is going to have to go much further than that. So I expect we will see a lot more action uh, on the fiscal policy front and perhaps in in the budget this week. One point of interest is going to be looking at how the nature of the fiscal stimulus changes as the health situation progresses. So in the early stages of this, as you mentioned, Alan, we don't, we didn't actually want people to be rushing out and spending a lot of money, um, which is what we would normally want to do when faced with an economic downturn. That would have been inconsistent with, with the public health imperative. But as things progress, and we're now going to be moving to level two, um, I would expect we're going to see things um, shift away from kind of broad-based supports of firms and towards more traditional forms of stimulus and perhaps more targeted assistance to the affected sectors. So the government has already signaled that infrastructure is going to be a focus For them, they've talked about streamlining uh, infrastructure projects around the Resource Management Act. Now, things like um, infrastructure spending, investment in a low carbon transition, investment in social housing, for me, probably falls in the category of things we should have been doing anyway. Um, So that would be welcome, but I think we need to acknowledge that there are some real downsides in terms of. Um, focusing on infrastructure as a form of stimulus and that it does operate with quite long lags. It takes a long time for these projects to get up and running, even if we do as much as we can to try and hurry that along. So I do hope that infrastructure spending is only part of our thinking and that we also consider measures like cash payments directly to households or greater assistance to workers who have lost their jobs uh, despite of the wage subsidy. And it's measures like these that can provide a lot more immediate support to the economy when it really needs it. Now, the other part of this is the situation with public debt, and public debt is going to rise as a result of this crisis. ANZ have suggested, for instance, that net debt as a percentage of GDP might reach 40 to 50% um, in the next couple of years. Um, But we should bear in mind that borrowing costs have actually been declining for a long time and I don't see that sort of a debt level as a major concern. I think there's a much greater risk that we don't do enough to support the economy and that we withdraw fiscal support too early. This is what we saw happening uh, internationally, following the global financial crisis, when a lot of countries started to worry about their debt levels and turned towards austerity. And the result of that was a very slow recovery, what we call an L-shaped recovery, meaning that the the economic activity never actually bounced back to the same trajectory that was on prior to the crisis. So during the GFC, it was around 2010 or so that we saw that pivot towards austerity. And it's a wee bit disheartening to see that only a couple of weeks, really, into this crisis, we're already seeing some commentators suggesting that the work has been done to cushion the economic blow, and it's time to focus on paying down the debt again. As Arthur has suggested, we don't actually know just how bad this is yet. If we look at the situation in the US, uh, which has had um, less stringent lockdown restrictions but less competent government compared to us, over the last two months or so, 30 million US workers have filed for unemployment insurance in the last two months. So it's off the charts in terms of how big this is and how quickly it's happening. Um, so Alan, if I can end by summarizing, I think it's the employment and the social costs that Kate is talking about that we really need to focus on at the moment, less so the fiscal costs. And we really need to do everything we can to secure the recovery rather than worrying about doing too much.
1: Oh thanks, Toby. Uh, Kate, um, Martha, it it sounds like it's gonna make quite a big difference as to what the recovery looks like, how long it takes, how deep we go before then. Is it the the most optimistic, um, people call it a Nike swoosh, I think, but uh, more likely, would we see a V-shaped recovery where after this really disruptive couple of quarters, we we get bounced back? Would we see a U-shaped recovery? And that could be quite long Um, Presumably there's a sort of a a point at which it really becomes even more damaging. And then as Toby just said, L-shape doesn't recover or recovers to a much lower trend. Uh, Kate, any thoughts about more social damage, more household damage um, from enduring job loss rather than shorter term job disruption? And of course, as economists, we're also interested in does that mean that um, People are going to be very cautious about spending, which in economic terms at least is part of the recovery
0: yeah sure, sure in terms of the the body of research that looks at job loss and family well-being, um, we know that. <laughs> A short-term job loss is not as consequential right what is consequential is um, job churn so going in and out of jobs um, so we we'll want to see some more protections for workers around that and also the length of time that you're experiencing job loss all, also matters and the reason why it seems to matter the mechanisms why job loss matters for for family well-being tend to operate through sort of two areas one is income right so we know if we can stabilize income and keep people out of poverty but it's going to buffer them against the shock of, of job loss and um, the second is psychological, right? So we also see that job loss affects the way that you feel um, elevated depression and that uh, impacts on, on your family well-being, right? So making this sure that we, first off, have the right income supports in place is gonna be really important. And, and second, making sure that our healthcare system is working, that people can access mental health resources as well to help them during the, this time of uncertainty. Um, So I'd I'd say those are the two big areas that we should be thinking on if we're concentrating in on this idea that job loss is going to be a consistent part of our recovery.
1: Yeah, thanks. And after the, how are we going to know whether we're having a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or whatever sort? Uh, What will we be looking at? Seems to me the data is just crazy at the minute and it's very hard to know what, what you put on it. The Bureau of Labor Standards in the US the other day came out with great
2: depression, levels of job disruption. Yeah, Yeah, We'll we'll certainly be seeing that. Um, I don't think we'll have either a U or a V. I think it's going to be a sort of a multiple W um, shaped recovery. It'll be sort of up, down, up, down, up, down, um, as successive waves of um, shocks or the reflections of shocks come through, whether it's from internal or external sources. Uh, and that's going to make it extremely difficult to know when we finally pull out of it. Um, you know, if we just either a U or a V would be wonderful, I think. <laughs> but I don't think we're we're going to have uh, either of those. We're clearly in a V at the moment. I mean, this, this you know next three months will be a lot better than the last three months. Uh, but uh, how that will proceed after that, we don't know. So we're going to have to be looking at um, very fine indicators rather than the GDP and things like that, which are which are lagging indicators uh, it'll come a lot from uh the various surveys that uh places like the the banks do you know the the pmis and psis and, and you know performance of manufacturing performance of services these sorts of indicators um spending indicators that we see from the uh payment systems uh people these are the sort of up-to-date things that we can monitor on a daily or a, or a weekly basis and that that's really going to be the the strongest indicators of where we're going, short-term, but long-term, I'd be amazed if we don't see, you know, at least a double dip or a triple dip.
1: And um, I'm keeping an eye on these questions and answers coming in from participants. One of the most popular questions is that great New Zealand concern, housing, and um, whether we'd see consolidation of the housing sector, uh, what would we see on pricing of houses uh, and i guess that's pretty complicated because we don't do we know what's happening to population in new zealand at the minute we've had new zealanders coming back we've had tourists leaving we've might have had some shorter term seasonal migrants leaving our forecast for the future might be a bit different from all of that maybe we've had household consolidation students going home and all that sort of thing Kate, do you have a feel for what might be happening at a household level and then the others in terms of what that means in the housing market?
0: Yeah, sure. In terms of the short, what was happening during lockdown, we actually did gather data on this because we wanted to see where people sort of moving in preparation from that. And, and we did see sort of a large proportion, I think it was about 10% of respondents reported that they had changed who they were living with leading up to this. It tended to be people who are renting, moving back, probably with family. Um, and we saw a lot of movement among young people. Um, that's not surprising because they were also the ones that were experiencing job loss. So perhaps they were flatting and then moving back in with um, their adult parents. Um, uh, we also probably um, tertiary students, right, are not going to be in the dorms anymore. It seemed that they were all moving home. So we are seeing a lot of movement in the household level and whether that Freeze up housing in the rental market, or not, um, and, and buffers against any shock of the New Zealand diaspora moving moving back home. Um, we'll we'll be watching.
3: Um, on on the the market side of things, I think this asset price question is a big one for me, and and I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen because we can see sort of factors pushing in either direction. Um, you know, normally in an economic downturn, we we're, we're going to have Uh, much lower confidence. Uh, People might be less optimistic of, say, you know, earning a lot of money through capital gains in the housing market. Um, And on the other hand, we have a variety of policy measures that might actually allow people to You know basically sit in place rather than being forced to sell their house so that is going to limit the downwards pressure there are mortgage holidays there's a lot of work that the government's doing with the banks to make sure that people um are assisted through periods of difficulty and of course we have now rock bottom interest rates so even if we're seeing people losing their jobs having difficulty paying their mortgages it's not necessarily um Going to lead to a widespread situation where where people are forced into into sales, and of course there's the factor that Arthur mentioned that because of the restrictions that we've had on mortgage lending that have now been lifted in the form of the loan to value ratios, we might have a segment of the market that's actually quite happy to uh, buy and in, into property market if they can at current prices but were simply unable to because they didn't have the cash on hand to meet the requirement for 20% equity. So um, I, don't, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. There's, there's a couple of different things at work there.
2: We'll see, Alan, a, a difference in different parts of the housing market. Uh, the um, Obviously, the Airbnb industry would have died. That'll free up a lot of uh, housing um, renters will be getting more crowded or moving back in, in with families etc so I, I think the and plus the unemployment situation um, I think all of that means that the housing market is going to be um, on a you know losing value um, in the short term but um, possibly uh, in particular the the areas that are most prone to Airbnb or renters etc. So I'd expect a housing downturn now, um, which is why first home buyers will be entering the market. So we might see a move into home ownership from that group. Um, longer term, I think it's a really interesting question. And and I can see two scenarios. One is with the literally trillions of dollars that governments are going to be borrowing over, um, as, as Toby said, um, they, can, they can essentially finance that in two ways longer term. One is... Either it'll force up real interest rates because the borrowing is just so immense that real interest rates will rise. Uh, that'll be a down negative for housing or they'll inflate it away, as of course we d- used to do in the 60s, 70s. Um, and that'll be a positive for the housing market. So I think it's going to depend on the long-term response of the US and other governments on how they uh, decide to pay off their debt through inflation or through um, paying high interest rates.
1: So who's going to pay for all of this? It's, it's looking like the biggest shock, the biggest stimulus, the biggest bill that we've seen in our lifetimes in New Zealand and worldwide. And uh, it's sort of easy not to think about that or to disguise it. Um, If we go back to World War II, wartimes are when countries' national debts have really grown as they've had all the requirements for military and civilian spending. Um, In 1940, Maynard Keynes, British economist, wrote a famous piece called How to Pay for the War. And ironically, it actually got published in Germany before the, the Times actually got around to publishing it in Britain. But basically it said, look, it's not just a matter of rationing. You've got to think about not just supply management, but demand management, and there's some big choices here. Young people could pay, older people could pay, Debt holders could pay, there could be bonds, there could be, it depends how your markets are going. And in a way, we've got the same, but a bigger set of choices this time about who's gonna pay for all of this. Um, Older people are complaining about lockdown and health risks. Younger people are complaining about job loss and lack of certainty about where that's all going. Homeowners are complaining about loss of value in homes. There's all sorts of ways you could cut this. Um, Kate do you want to give any thoughts about who is and who could be paying for it and we'll go around the table on it.
0: Sure I mean I would just offer very broadly that there does need to be a recognition of of the differential impacts of lockdown and this Um, and and who the lockdown was was done for right like we the health impacts of the pandemic of COVID uh, you know it's going to affect older people more so right and from our our data, we're seeing that they are the ones that sort of had their well-being stayed intact during this time too. Um, So it was low-income families that were really suffering the brunt of this and may have been the ones that weren't going to be as adversely affected if they did catch COVID. So I think in any type of response we need to, or a fiscal or social policy response, it's sort of a recognition of the inequality that's been generated from this. That's going to be really important um, to think about. Um, Um, Alan.
3: If I could make a a couple of points here, it's fair enough to ask um, who who is going to pay for this, but if we look back um, at the experience of a lot of countries with the debt that they ran up um, during the war, um, actually they don't end up paying it off. Uh, they grow their economies faster than than the debt is increasing. You know, the UK took a long, long time to pay off its substantial war debt, but it was actually increasing the stock of debt over time. I mentioned this just to point out that if we are worried about the the um, level of debt that we're taking on relative to GDP, you know, the, the first priority is to get GDP going again and getting people back into work. I would say I'm less optimistic on that front because one of the, you know, the options that we have looked to to increase nominal GDP in recent times is simply letting more people into the country, and for obvious reasons, there's going to be sort of restrictions on our ability to do that looking forward. Um, but the other point I'd make is that, as I mentioned in my comments, um, borrowing rates have been declining. Um, so we may well ask if if the level of debt that we are uh, uh, were comfortable with in previous generations um, is still the level of debt that we would be comfortable with, given that potentially the interest rates we're going to be paying um, are substantially lower.
2: Yeah, I think we've got two, two things from history, um, Alan, on this. How did we, how did New Zealand pay off its very large um, borrowings uh, back in the 60s, 70s? Well, Muldoon inflated them away, basically. So the people who, who paid it off were the people who had um, their superannuation savings basically stolen by, by that government. So that, that's one option. Uh, I think maybe people are a bit wiser now and they won't have their money in, in uh, assets that can be um, inflated away so easily. So I think it'll be uh, Toby and Kate's generation rather than our generation, Alan, that um, pay for it or, or their kids. Um, and government's made sure that the um, over 65s are completely insulated from this up till now. In fact, they've even given them a bonus with an extra energy winter, pa- you know, winter energy payment, completely unneeded by most people. And um, so we're, we're making sure that the future generations pay um, to keep people of uh, our generation um, you
1: know, kept well. Oh, yeah, a little bit more complicated than that, Arthur. Um, we're seeing quite a number of early retirements from people whose jobs are at risk at that end of the age distribution. And of course, what, what's causing the risk to older people? I think quite often it's younger people especially ones who don't know the difference between one metre and two metre when it comes to separation. But these are just the sort of arguments that are going to wreck the country, I'm sure. I'm going back to the questions from participants. There's a question for Arthur, why is the global stock market not reflecting the state of the economy
2: he doesn't know the answer to that, he can't answer that. Yeah, I do, I do actually. And, and, and a, I, try, try, I try to explain this to my colleagues who wouldn't believe me, but stock markets um, look at the present discount of value of future profits um, through to, you know, theoretically through to infinity, but, you know, for a very long time. And so even if you expect profits to be down for two, three, four years, you expect them to be back up to normal levels after that. And given that we've also got very, very low discount rates, very low uh, interest rates, uh, you actually put a lot more emphasis on long-term profits than we used to, so um, there's no reason why a stock market should reflect the current economic situation if you expect it to be back up and running uh, two or three, you know, years' time with low interest rates.
1: Okay, good, thank you. Uh, we're uh, we've got on the panel. We're lucky to have the world's experts on well-being, and we've talked about so far, impacts on GDP and impacts on households. Kate, if we are looking at the impact of COVID more broadly, um, particularly through an economic lens, does the wellbeing framework tell us anything, give us any guidance about how we should be thinking about it all and about the costs?
0: no absolutely um i arthur may disagree with me here on <laughs> too many domains means we're not measuring the right things um but i i think it's just gonna it's gonna be really important to look at those different domains of health of uh, mental well-being um, of income uh, you know of, of family well-being um and to see where the impact is right this allows us to target our social policies and our fiscal policies in ways that sort of alleviate those inequalities and and go beyond just sort of that that income picture. That we, we we know again that the lockdown did cause um, economic harm to families, um, but it also caused other types of harm. That's not going to be picked up if we're just looking purely at the household finances. So yeah, I know I think a wellbeing framework is is it's lovely that we have some ways of measuring things that are in place, and we can keep our eye on the statistics um, over time and, and hopefully see that we haven't created more inequality in those domains from the lockdown.
1: Arthur, you said at one stage to me wellbeing framework um, indicated that New Zealanders are prepared to have a lot of cost provided they think the cost is being borne in an equitable sort of way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's come back to the inequality point that Kate made as well. Um, we measure our um, our wellbeing often by how well we're doing relative to others. And if everyone's sharing the um, the burden, then uh, wellbeing doesn't decline uh, even with with a major shock. And that's why I'm not surprised at Kate's results in her survey, that wellbeing hasn't been badly affected because New Zealanders have been sharing the burden pretty equally in terms of loss of liberty, et cetera. Uh, and most people, almost all, have thought that's worthwhile. So I, I think that's been a really positive thing. And, and one of the key things in coming out of the um, situation now would be to make sure that um, groups come out of it in a sort of reasonably equal sort of way in terms of you know um, ability to reaccess the economy and reaccess their liberties, etc. The two areas of well-being that I think are most important to keep an eye on are both been raised by Kate. One is uh, mental health, um, and we know that lockdowns are really negative for, for mental health, so the sooner we come out of it, the better for that perspective. And the second one is unemployment, uh, which is a very long-term scarring effect on people's wellbeing. And I have to mention here that it's a lot more scarring for men than it is for women. All the evidence internationally shows that men suffer terribly from unemployment, much more so than women. And uh, so, while we're often thinking about social policies how they can affect uh, how they can benefit women, here we've really got to think about the effect on men because it's it's a
3: major uh, group. Mm,
1: Interesting, Toby, thoughts?
3: Uh, The way I would think about this is is to look at some of the evidence from the UK about about that scarring effect of long term. dislocation from the labour markets and and you know this is one way of understanding that it's not simply the cost on the unemployed people it's a cost that's imposed on society as a whole Um, and if people are unemployed for a long period of time they can lose sort of the social skills that are important for for working alongside others and paid employment they can see their skills become less relevant or become rusty and they can get discouraged and and simply stop Looking for work um, altogether. Um, one area of some of the more interesting research that's come out uh, in recent times comes from from Ann Case and Angus Deaton, um, talking about what they call deaths of despair in, in the United States. And this is just a massive spike in the mortality rate of working class white males, in particular, um, associated with long term unemployment, but particularly around issues like suicide, depression, um, alcoholism. Um, the opioid epidemic, as well. Um, and we have some recent evidence, survey evidence from New Zealand um, that, that my friend Andrew Coleman and others completed suggesting that. Even people in paid un- unemployment are willing to sacrifice a considerable amount to not live in a society with a with a high level of unemployment. We don't like seeing our fellow citizens out of work um, and in that sort of situation, and and witnessing that loss of human potential in our own society. Um, so. Aside from the economic case for, for doing so, I think, you know, simply on the basis of obligations to fellow citizens, I think there's a really uh, strong case there for, for doing as much as we can to get people back to work.
1: Thanks. Well, look, we're, we're drawing to a time limit. Um, I'd like to go around you once more. And you're all uh, Victoria University lecturers. You're always setting questions for your students. I'm going to set one for you. And this really relates to not just New Zealand, it's international. We need to have a bit of international discussion on all of that. The Great Depression was arguably not solved by the US New Deal policies, it was solved by World War II. Please discuss.
2: Well, I mean, historically, New Zealand came out of the Depression well before World War II. So um, I don't think that's uh, correct. You know, the, the economy was was rising after about 1934, so... Um, it's true in the US. Um, yeah, well, they because they didn't bother entering the First Second World War for quite a long time, so, you know, I mean, so... Um, well, so the answer is get in early. And, uh, no, no, I, I think uh, what we've learned is that, I mean, that was essentially a fiscal response, though, and, and so I think what we've learned is that we can use fiscal policy, much less monetary policy, but we can use fiscal policy to really good effect provided we start with a low debt situation uh, to begin with, which New Zealand, thank goodness, did. And uh, so, you know, I, th- I think like like Toby, um, we've got a great opportunity to use fiscal policy for a number of years to really lift us out of this uh, this problem. And I think other countries, to a lesser extent, because of their initial
3: debt situations. Alan, um, I'd, I'd answer the, the question in a slightly roundabout way i mean one of the issues with the great depression was a collapse in global cooperation uh we had countries imposing tariffs on each other tariffs may or may not have contributed all all that much directly but one thing they did do is is um you know really damage any inclination countries had to to work together with each other in in a way that would have allowed them to alleviate a lot of the pain associated with with the depression um so I, i think there are some interesting parallels uh to to the current situation for one thing um in the white house we have a u.s president who is uh less committed less enamored with the the global liberal international order than than any of his predecessors since world war ii uh, we have a situation between the the, the world's biggest superpowers that um even osnos from the new, the new yorker described in, in an interview uh, a couple of months ago as being at um, the us china relationship being at the worst stage it has been since that relationship was formed in the 1970s so a lot of people have been talking about what this what this means for globalization and perhaps some reassessment of what we make in New Zealand versus what is what is made internationally um, but I think it's really important to to bear in mind that you know to manage crises like this, we need countries working together. We need them you know, building bridges with each other rather than pointing fingers at one another. Um, we need sort of more resources behind um, the World Health Organization rather than the Trump administration trying to sort of pretend it doesn't exist or cut it out of the picture. So that, that I think is a, is a really important aspect that, that does hark back to the situation with, with the Great Depression.
1: Yeah, there's some real big questions about international response and coordination. Kate, um, do you, that that's sort of partly a trade driven view, partly an economic driven view, do you see it through a different lens? Do you see opportunities in terms of where we might be going internationally now
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, compared to the challenge ahead?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I feel like I'd just like to dance around the question entirely and just say that um, are we so sort of unimaginative that we, we can't come up with a solution that keeps people from being hungry um, as well as allows us to keep our health? Right, And that's sort of the, the straw man argument that I'm seeing in the, the US media about, you know, sort of the the counterfactual of a lockdown is everyone going hungry. And that doesn't have to be the case. and We don't need to be talking that way.
1: No, well, thanks. I, I think what we're all sort of realizing in this, though, is you could have some rational Um, responses, both social health and economic, from a country like New Zealand and many other countries too, but they don't necessarily add up to an international uh, response that's the sort we need and we still are going to be heavily dependent on all of that. It's hard to um, end this discussion on a high note, since we're talking about maybe the biggest disaster of our time, but We've certainly learned quite a lot about what we know, what we don't know, and how we might start to know about what we don't know in the future as well. And I'd like to thank our panelists very much for everything that they've put in on this and I'm sure we're all better off as a result. I hope you can join us again same time for the second in the series. This time next week, we'll be talking about the economy struggles to recover. How do we rebuild? three more Victoria University of Wellington panellists will look at where we're heading. And in the meantime, stay safe, everybody, and follow policy, stay spaced
0: out. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to De Corky School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music from Te Waka Victoria University of Wellington. Haere rā.